0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take a spiritual exploration of some of life's biggest questions. Questions that have been asked by prophets and kings, mystics and sinners and questions that continue to be asked by each of us every day we'll take this journey with rabbi niles goldstein when we talk about his new book eight questions of faith biblical challenges that guide and ground our lives stay tuned Hey, friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakis. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast. And each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian. And she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world. And then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it, and I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy, Holy podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy, Holy podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know, I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay, here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein. He's the award-winning author and editor of 10 books and was the founding rabbi and spiritual leader of the New Shoal, an innovative and dynamic synagogue in Manhattan's Greenwich Village for over a decade. He's now their rabbi emeritus. He's written for Newsweek, the LA Times, and he's been featured in Time, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Christian Science Monitor. Rabbi Goldstein has served as a U.S. Army chaplain for the last 20 years, and he has strong ties to the federal law enforcement community. He also has a strong interest in interfaith relations, and he's worked for the Parliament of World Religions, the Center for Interfaith Engagement. His passion for, for adventure has taken him from the, from the steppes of Central Asia and Mongolia to the dog-mushing trails of Alaska and the Arctic. He lectures and teaches throughout the country on various topics, including spirituality and leadership, and he served on the faculty of New York University, Loyola University, and Hebrew Union College. We're going to be discussing today his new book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. Rabbi Niles Goldstein, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks, David. I realize that uh, a lot of folks in our audience are going to already know what you do for a living, but for that small segment that has no idea what the day-to-day life of a rabbi is like, let's start there. What does a rabbi do?
1: You know, I had a professor uh, years ago uh, when I was in rabbinical school, when I was in seminary, s- say to me that that rabbis – and I, I suppose this would go for ministers and pastors as well, maybe priests too – you know, were the last of the generalists. And I think that's true even more in this digital age. Rabbis teach, rabbis preach, rabbis pastor. Um, we work with people uh, from all different stripes, all different backgrounds. If we're working in the congregational context, and, and I have a congregation right now in the metro uh, Chicago area as well, um, you know, we try to meet people where they are and find out what it is that is uh, vexing them, challenging them, uh, elevating them, and, and just trying to offer uh what we can as as they find their way um along this journey i had uh you mentioned my work with federal law enforcement and i've worked for many years as the national jewish chaplain for the umbrella organization of all the different federal law enforcement agencies it's called FLIOA, uh the federal law enforcement officers association and through that organization i was involved uh after the bombing in oklahoma city at ground zero in new york after 911 And I developed a lot of relationships with people all across the the spectrum, the faith spectrum. And I had a friend who sadly has passed away, um, uh, a, a priest, Father Terry Attridge. Uh, and when I was a young chaplain, just starting out, he said, I, "You know, I was saying, well, what's our job working with these people?" And he said, "You know, ministering to to cops and agents is is pretty much the same thing as ministering to to the average person in the pew." He said, "Our our task, and I've never forgotten this, is to uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable." So I think that's my job as as a rabbi too, and you know that's what I've tried to do for for twenty years now.
0: When a person who's unfamiliar with what a rabbi does. Understands what you do, they may think that you're just kind of like a pastor in a funny-looking hat, <laughs> and uh, and so and so there there there's extra there's extra texts beyond just the biblical texts that you're playing with. Tell us kind that's of right. how those work in the Jewish tradition. Yeah,
1: well, that's a good question. Um, and you know, as you've noted, I've done interfaith work for for many years, probably as long as as I've been a rabbi. And, um, sometimes in the more, um, conservative or evangelical Christian community, you know, I get the impression that they think of Jews as, you know, ancient Hebrews who have just stepped out of the pages of the New Testament. I'm sorry, of, of the Old Testament. But as, as you correctly point out, while we have, um, a rich and, and, ancient uh, um scriptural tradition which christianity um you know has adopted as as well and and christians uh, refer to it as the old testament we just call it the torah uh, or the tanakh um but we also have this tradition known as the oral tradition the written and the oral tradition and the oral tradition in in, in a sense uh you mentioned the talmud uh, there was another book before that known as the Mishnah, uh, and the Mishnah and the Talmud together are really um, uh, for lack of a better um, description a, a way developed by the rabbis, the ancient rabbis uh, to create a history of interpretation of what the bible means
0: now are these are these writings and these these interpretations are they simply uh, about the legal side the the kind of the law of the Sabbath and all of that. Or – and this is going to begin to sort of shade over into, into what you're trying to do in your book, Eight Questions of Faith. Are they also existential aids? Are they, are they in some way not just telling you what we should do but sort of how we should live and consider living?
1: Well, yeah. I mean definitely. And um, you know, I'm thinking back to some of the medieval polemicists and some of the anti-Semitic traditions um, that were around and – uh, often at that time, Jews were accused of promoting a religion of law, not a religion of love. Uh, and that's, that's uh, a polemic. That, that's not accurate. Um, so I think your point is a good one. While the, the written tradition, I'm sorry, while the oral tradition is a history of interpretation about um, some of the laws, Uh, What does it mean to keep kosher, to observe the dietary laws, laws of family purity, uh, laws regarding Shabbat? Um, They're also uh, very – it's also very much a history of interpretation about um, interpersonal relationships. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what exactly does that mean? And that's where the Mishnah and the Talmud and the, the oral tradition come and try to offer an interpretation of, of, you know, how we're supposed to live our lives. Or, for example, the afterlife. Um, the Torah is very sparse in terms of offering us uh, a picture of what the world to come might look like. So the written, the the oral tradition comes along and, and, and ruminates about that, tries to understand uh, what the afterlife might look like. So yes, it's about, uh, understanding the, the laws of the Bible, but it's also about understanding, uh, um, virtue and, and interpersonal relations. And as I try to get at in, in my book, Eight Questions of Faith, it's also about, um, wrestling with these great existential questions, uh, that all of us face in our lives.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein. He's the author of ten books, and he has long worked as a U.S. Army chaplain and with the law enforcement community. We're speaking today with uh, him about his new book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. This is a book that, that does many things at once, and I really enjoyed reading it. One of the things that it does is it it sort of tells an odyssey of Of your, uh, your life at a turning point. If, if I could say, it's a midlife crisis book in some ways. Sure. And, but, but surrounding that midlife crisis, you, you bring literally the wisdom of the ages. I mean, you, you take these eight different questions and they are deeply existential questions that are, that are posed to us by various characters of the Bible who have said it at different, at different points. And then you, you give us also a very personal narrative. And I wonder, uh, first of all, just in terms of how you considered structuring this book when you were sitting down to write it, what was it that made made you have the choice to sort of weave together both this deeply philosophical uh, sort of wisdom-based approach with this very raw and and personal account of, of this turning point in your life?
1: Well, you know, in, in my earlier books as well, I, I've always, I, I have very broad interests and very broad passions. That's why for me, uh, in my rabbinate, it hasn't been enough just to work with the Jewish community. I want to work with other faith communities as as well, um, and it's not enough just to serve a congregation. I's, I've also been interested in working with law enforcement and the military, um, etc. Um, so I think with with this particular book, I was I was really drawn to these great questions. You know, going back to um, what I mentioned before in response to one of your questions. The stereotype, uh, and, and I think it's a, it's a polemic, um, going back to the Middle Ages, but the stereotype of, of the Old Testament or of the Torah or of Judaism in general is that we're a religion of law and the God we talk about is a God of law, not a God of love and that the Hebrew scriptures is nothing but a series of rules, regulations, and and, and commandments. And as I've studied it over the years, while, while those are all present, of course um, – What always intrigued me more were the questions that were present, questions asked by priests, by prophets, by kings, by saints, by sinners, uh, even by God. And so the book highlights eight of these questions, Uh, some famous like uh, Cain's question to God and My my Brother's Keeper. some uh, not so famous, uh, like Jeremiah's question, the prophet Jeremiah's question, why did I come forth from the womb? Um, you know, when he's wondering why he's even living at all, because life is so difficult for him uh, as a prophet. And so as I started exploring these questions and and um, as I wanted to write a book about them, I, I thought that they fit, you know, really nicely with the kind of questions that I found myself asking uh, as a middle-aged man and 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 rabbi, and I'm 50 now, I, I think I started, you know, addressing these questions in a much more direct way when I hit my late 30s, early, early 40s. Um, I went through a divorce. Um, I got burned out of, of doing full-time congregational work. Uh, I um, relocated after 20 years in New York back to my native Chicago with no plan, no job, nothing lined up. So I I really wanted to write a book um, that captured uh, both – um, the, the angst of, of my midlife journey and, and crisis and conflict, I would say, um, with, I think, the, the crises and conflicts that even characters from, from the Bible went through. Because as I started talking to friends and, and colleagues, um, as the years went, went on, I found that so many people, um, when they hit a certain age, we're, we're going through many of these conflicts, many of these questions. So I wanted to offer a book that tried to help fee- help people uh, along the way, and also, um, as I say in the uh, introduction, to help people feel that they're not alone, uh, to offer a kind of fellowship um, so that uh, they they don't feel that the questions they're asking about life and death are theirs alone, but that there's a long and rich uh, and biblical tradition uh, of people
0: asking these great existential questions. Well, in the introduction to your book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives, there's a, a short passage that actually sort of typifies what I took to be your approach to the Bible. And I wonder if, if just briefly as a way of, of ending this segment, you would read that passage so that our listeners sort of get a sense of where you're coming from about these questions.
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. The Bible is neither a philosophical treatise nor, in my view, a roadmap for redemption. It is instead a complex existential expression of uncertainty and confusion, of yearning and hope, of wonderment, suffering, and joy. The Bible and the timeless questions interwoven in it is a testament to and a portrait of the valleys and peaks of the human condition. It doesn't offer us rigid answers. It graces us
0: with fellowship. And that's Rabbi Niles Goldstein reading from his recent book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. He uses these eight questions from the Bible to explore the human journey from cradle to grave, confronting such important existential experiences and themes as mortality, responsibility, forbidden knowledge, and the afterlife. We'll be talking to Rabbi Goldstein throughout the hour. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath. The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself, and so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to AdvertiseCast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein. He's the author of ten books, and we're speaking today about his most recent one called Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. This book uses eight questions found in the Bible to explore the human journey from cradle to grave, confronting such important existential experiences and themes as mortality, responsibility, forbidden knowledge, and the afterlife. Rabbi Goldstein has been a founding rabbi of the New Shul, which was a dynamic synagogue in manhattan's greenwich village he served there from 1999 to 2010 he's written for newsweek the la times and a variety of other publications and he has traveled across the world as both a a u.s army chaplain and working with federal law enforcement he lectures throughout the country on various topics including spirituality and leadership and he served on the faculty of new york university loyola university and hebrew union college so you, you said at the at the earlier part of the program that you have a great interest in interfaith work, and when you use this term interfaith what how how do you understand that term? What are you trying to accomplish when you are engaging in an interfaith conversation
1: well that's a good question I, i'm not sure when I engage in an interfaith conversation, whether it 's with other clergy uh, or um non-clergy, uh, lay people, that I'm trying to accomplish much of anything. Um, I don't know that I have a concrete goal. Um, I think what I'm more interested in is participating in a dialogical process with people uh, coming from a variety of, of faith contexts who are all just trying to make it through this this difficult uh, place that, that we call the human journey. Um, so uh, while I have met with people of different denominations and faith traditions at conferences, at churches, at synagogues, um, you know, uh, at, at crime scenes, you know, um, you name it. Um, you know, While we sometimes talk about our different beliefs and, and doctrines and practices, more often than not, uh, we, we don't necessarily talk about theology. We talk more about some of these existential experiences and challenges that I highlight in my book. Um, all of us struggle with the challenges of, of the fact that we're going to die. Um, all of us ask questions about whether or not there's a world beyond this one all of us wrestle with questions about responsibility um, for, for one another. And so for me, interfaith dialogue is a great way to comment some of these questions and challenges that all of us share, whether you're Christian, Buddhist, or Jewish, uh, whether you live in India, um, uh, the United States, Malaysia, or the UK. Um, and I think inter interfaith dialogue is just um, – a catchphrase uh, for people uh, coming at the human experience um, from all different kinds of, of backgrounds and orientations. So I don't know that I have a particular goal in mind. Um, It really – I guess if I have any kind of a goal, it's that we need to respect one another and honor our various traditions. What what I never want to do when I'm in an interfaith situation is ask ask someone to compromise their their deepest values and commitments. Um, So when I'm talking to a Christian, I would never ask them – to particularly a conservative Christian, I would never ask them to give up their belief in um – uh, spreading the good news, spreading the gospel. And while I have questions about proselytizing and its uh, dangers to uh, minority traditions, minority communities such as my own, I wouldn't ask them to give that up. That, that's a core belief for them. Um, just as I would not ask uh, a conservative Jew to give up the notion of a chosen people, even though I myself, as a more progressive Jew, don't believe in, in that kind of a concept. Anymore. I think it's very important to honor our most uh, deeply held beliefs.
0: Now, you said a moment ago that you you approach interfaith conversations without a real set agenda. I'm interested, as you've been engaging in this in these conversations, and you've been doing this for a couple of decades now. Yeah. What's been the most surprising? or one of the most surprising moments that you've encountered from these open-ended conversations where you walked into a conversation and you walked away saying, wow, I really did not expect that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, you know, what pops into my mind right now is uh, a panel I was involved in uh, on Guernsey in the Channel Islands. I was invited by the Anglican Church. I can't even remember how long ago now, maybe maybe 12 years ago. Uh, to speak at an interfaith retreat center, um, a- in a town called St. Peterport, uh, in the Channel Islands on the island of Guernsey. And the speakers were an Anglican minister, myself, and, um, uh, a Muslim imam. And we had a wonderful multi-day retreat slash conference on a variety of topics. Um, and what was surprising to me at the end is, you know, you know, the cliche, um, that politics makes strange bedfellows. Well, I think interfaith dialogue does the same thing and you never know who you're going to bond with and who you're going to have disagreements with. And it turned out that um, this imam who was from the UK and I bonded in a very profound way. Um, he was a convert to Islam. Um, but it turned out as the, the, the conference went along that we shared so many things in common. Um, unlike the Anglican minister, the imam and, and I had a commitment to, to dietary practices. And even though they were very different, um, there were plenty of similarities. So we went for a celebratory dinner at the end uh, to an, a, a local Indian restaurant. And as we were ordering the various dishes, uh, the imam and I wound up sharing dishes because neither of us ate pork. And the Anglican wanted to eat pork. So we bonded on that level. Just on a very human level, it turned out that the imam and I had both played rugby uh, in college and in our in our twenties, so we bonded on that level just as as people. Um, and theologically, as as uh, a Jew and as a Muslim, um, there were certain core beliefs that we really um, felt uh, an affinity uh, over. So that was an experience where I went into um, a, a conference um, thinking that I, I might wind up having more in common with this progressive Christian rather than with this relatively conservative imam. And for a variety of both personal as well as um, um, faith-based reasons, you know, we wound up developing a friendship that kind of extends to today, although it's mostly via Facebook at, at this point.
0: One of the things that struck me about about your book, Eight Questions of Faith, uh is that as you're talking about these these sort of personal engagements that you have uh, around some pretty profound moments in your life, one of the things that rang through for me, and I, I know you both uh, personally as well as in the context of this interview, um, one of the things that rings through for me is is that there's a real kind of tension that I see. Um, it's a tension that, on the one hand. <coughs> You, you do properly describe yourself, I think, as a person of a more progressive political bent. Mm-hmm. But I got the sense from reading the book that you also take the, the liturgical and theological matters of faith with great depth and seriousness. And, and I'm interested just in asking about how that balance plays out in your life. Um as a person who also, you know, uh, has this this tension between a more sort of progressive political bent and what I would consider to be a very conservative theology. Sort of how does that play out in day-to-day because it's so easy in our in our contemporary culture to think that they track one to one that a conservative theological bent or conservative approach to religion might have a conservative politics behind it. But I don't see that in you and I don't live that myself. So how yeah. how do you work that out?
1: With difficulty. <laughs> uh, I, I think you're right. It, it, there is a tension, both theologically and in terms of personal practice. Um, and I, I haven't quite worked it all out. I mean, this is going to air at some point um, during or just after the the Days of Awe, uh, the Jewish High Holy Days. And in our liturgy, the, there's a tension as well. You know, So I guess I would say that whatever tension I have is one that the rabbis shared. So, for example, in the Jewish liturgy during the Days of Awe, There's a tension between predetermination and and free will. There's a very uh, well-known prayer that is set to music called Avinu Malkenu, Our Father, Our King. So uh, Jews around the world during the Days of Awe, Uh, sing this prayer where we say, Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our our King, um, help us, save us, because we have no works. Uh, No matter what we do, we we need your help. Uh, we're, We're sinners. We can't do it alone. And yet, later in that same section of the liturgy, it says we can revoke uh the judgment of God's God's decree through prayer and and good works and and charity so there seems to be a a contradiction there or or uh, at least a tension between the fact that we're sinners and our works will never be enough to save us and yet this idea that that yes through through free will and through good works um we will pull ourselves uh, out of the gutter um so i think the the rabbinic tradition um has that tension as well i mean i can tell you in my personal life i lived in jerusalem for for 2 years and I used to go to the mikveh, uh the Jewish ritual bath, uh, every Friday afternoon after rugby practice. And I mentioned rugby a little bit earlier. Um, mo- mo- I would say most r- uh, non-Orthodox Jews uh, do not um, follow that practice anymore. But I thought it was a great way to sort of spiritually cleanse myself. Uh, and the, the baptismal font is an outgrowth of, of the mikvah uh, in the cr- Christian tradition, um, and many Jews in more traditional camps go to the mikveh, um in a mystical sense to purify themselves before the Sabbath uh, or before the Days of Awe. So I used to go every Friday afternoon before going to Friday night Sabbath uh, services. Then when I moved back to the United States, I would only go uh, maybe once a year to prepare myself for the Days of Awe. Now, to be really honest with you, I haven't gone in, in, in a while. Um, since I moved back to Chicago after New York. So again, I wrestle with practice. I wrestle with theology. There's a tension there between some of my more, um, traditional um, feelings uh, about Jewish belief and practice and some of my more progressive sensibilities, particularly as as a rabbi and a man you know in in midlife and even on the in the throes or maybe the end of a midlife crisis, you know trying to figure out how all of this stuff plays a role um, in my life. you know do I have questions about organized religion? Yes, do I have questions about God? Absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking on the subway ride this morning, coming to, to this interview, um, I, I was thinking about petitionary prayer. And I have always had questions about petitionary prayer. But, you know, I won't lie to you. There are still moments in my life where I ask God for help, um, in, in, sometimes in concrete ways. And yet when push comes to shove, do I really believe in a God who operates in that way? I don't think I do. So, uh, you know, you, your question really highlights um, a real tension I have in my life. But I think a lot of religionists share this tension um, if if they're being honest. So I, I don't know. Do you have this tension in, in your own life?
0: I, I do. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I'm raising children and I, I'm a convert to Catholicism mm-hmm. and my wife is a convert to Catholicism, so we don't have any of the cultural aspects of Catholicism. Yeah. Um the ones that we have we've been very conscious about adopting. Like for a while we were Fish on Fridays Catholics and now we're sort of not. Um but we're watching our children be inculcated into this and we're actually learning the culture through them and through their interactions. And you know, I'm 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 being reminded now by my by my daughter on a regular basis papa don't take the lord's name in vain <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so so my practice is being refined by by what what's happening to them and so this this tension for me is an interesting one and I, I like to ask uh, my guests about this because the ways in which faith is not just something that gets tacked on to a life but is is part of the choices that we make about our life it really fascinates me and really kind of animates the questions of of this program. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you taking a moment to sort of let us into into your practice and, on and, it.
1: And David, if I could just interrupt, interject yeah. one thing, I mean um, this tension uh, permeates – Every religious tradition, every religious community that I'm aware of – for example, recently I'm a member of the Chicago Board of Rabbis and I was part of a Jewish-Muslim um, dialogue um, uh, in recent months and we were sitting around a table and a number of uh, Muslim – uh, colleagues of mine, imams, academics, lay leaders, were sh- and many of them were immigrants to this country uh, from Pakistan, from India, um, from Saudi Arabia. And they were sharing that, you know, it's a very different story for their children uh, and grandchildren, the ones who were born in the United States uh, or in North America uh, as citizens. Um, the, the, the tensions that they're going through, um, balancing, you know, their, their commitments to and attractions to, um, secular American culture with their commitments to the beliefs and practices of the faith traditions they've inherited or been born into, you know, are, are very different than it, than what the situation was for the parents. And, and I think Jews, Christians, Muslims, I mean, uh, Hindus, we all go through this. Um, so that, that's a whole other interesting dimension to interfaith dialogue. The role that the children of immigrants play vis-a-vis their, their parents. No. No, and I'm not saying you're an immigrant, but you, you certainly are an immigrant to Catholicism. So I can see how your, your kids might be, you know, teaching you some things.
0: Well, and that, that raises an interesting point about American religious landscape sort of over the last ten years. So if we look at the data from, from the Pew Research, uh, trusts, sort of religious landscape survey. What they say is that the, the rise, the largest movement that we've seen is the rise of the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S, the people that don't identify in any way at all with any religious tradition. Now, you have worked as a chaplain in a variety of public service settings, so the military and law enforcement. And I'd, I'd be very curious, as, as this trend has been happening in sort of American society generally, how has that impacted what you have seen in terms of of law enforcement?
1: Well, I th- you know I mentioned a little bit earlier um, that I lived in New York for twenty years um, and that I'm the national Jewish chaplain for the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association. So I've worked with with federal agents with law enforcement for twenty years, almost twenty two years, I think at this point, um, including in Oklahoma City and and uh, at nine, at Ground Zero after nine eleven. So, you know, this is something that's very close to me. Um, and I can, I can tell you that one of the good things that has emerged after some of these horrible events that have happened, um, in the millennium, in the new millennium, is that there is much more sensitivity now in the law enforcement community, federal, state, and local. But I, I've worked mostly with federal. Much more sensitivity about different faith communities and um their their different uh, cultural orientations, theological orientations, et cetera. Um the FBI, you know, the NYPD, Chicago Police Department, you know, certainly the bigger uh, departments and agencies have liaisons uh to different communities. I don't know, you know, how far back that went. But there is much more sensitivity now um to working with different uh, communities in order to prevent radicalization, uh, for example, or in order, um, to be more sensitive to the idea of, uh, racial and, and, um, religious profiling. Um, I, I certainly know that that's a case on the federal level. I don't know as much, you know, on the state and, and, and local level. But that's a, a good thing, I, I think. Um, and one of the reasons, possibly, that there have not been as many uh, terrorist um, uh, um, activities in, in the United States as, as we've seen in, in Europe although there have been some uh, bad ones including very recently which could have been far worse um, in Chelsea and New Jersey um is because law enforcement is working directly with some of the leaders, both religious and secular, of um, different faith communities. In particular, the, the Muslim faith community. So that I think is a, a good thing and a direct outgrowth of um, you know some of the terrible things that have happened since nine eleven.
0: We're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein, and uh, we're talking about, in particular, his new book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges that Guide and Ground Our Lives. But we're also talking about uh, his more than 20 years as a rabbi in various locations, including uh, the Chicago area and the New York area. Rabbi Goldstein has written for Newsweek, the L.A. Times, and his work has also been featured in Time, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the Christian Science Monitor. As he just mentioned, he's worked for many years as a U.S. Army Army chaplain and as a chaplain for federal law enforcement communities Uh, he has an interest in interfaith relations and he lectures and teaches throughout the country and abroad on various topics of spirituality and leadership we'll be back in a moment earlier in the program we talked about advertising but there are ways to support things not seen even if you don't have anything to sell i just wanted to take a moment and give a quick shout out and thank you to our patreon supporters Now, if you don't know what this platform is, it's a way for you to regularly give contributions that support our work every time that we release a new episode. It costs you just a little bit, like maybe the cost of a latte a month, maybe a dollar an episode, but it adds up because it aggregates with all the other people and ends up being a nice sum for us. Many of you have stepped up. We've only been doing this for a few weeks, but already the numbers are there, and I appreciate it so much. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can do it very easily. Just go to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash notseenradio. Thank you always for listening, and thank you especially for your support. We really do appreciate it. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein. He's the author of 10 books and he has also written for Newsweek and the LA Times and his work has been featured in Time, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and several other publications. He's worked for many years with uh, the Chaplaincy of the US Army and with federal law enforcement communities and he's also been deeply involved in interfaith relations. He's a lecturer. He teaches throughout the country on various topics, including spirituality, religion, leadership, and personal growth. He served on the faculty of New York University, Loyola University, and Hebrew Union College. We're talking about his new book, Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges That Guide and Ground Our Lives. When I was reading your book, Eight Questions of Faith, I found that you kept coming back. You, know, you were living in New York City, but you kept coming back to these raw experiences in the wilderness – and I, I just – I want to ask you, what was it that you found in those moments of solitude out there in the wilderness that was so profound for you? There's
1: something about being in in nature that feeds my soul in a way that, that the urban environment just can't. In my most recent book, In, in Eight Questions of Faith, you're right. I, I talk about some of these experiences in nature that transform my life. Um, for example, I talk about an experience where I went to the Faroe Islands in the North Atlantic that really taught me about the spirituality of solitude. I've always been uh, intrigued by a lot of the uh, monastic and ascetic writings of the Jewish and, and – um, Christian traditions and being in the Faroe Islands in the middle of the North Atlantic it gave me a sense of uh, that spirituality of solitude uh, or I think and I wrote about this in a different book uh, called God at the Edge when I was in my early 20s uh, I went off alone into the wilderness of New Hampshire uh, and I went on a Native American religious practice called a vision quest that was also a very transformative experience so You know, I don't know exactly what it is about nature that helps, uh, the soul when it's, when it's wounded or when it's searching. You know, there's something about that, that raw and unvarnished experience of creation that creates a kind of church, a kind of sanctuary in the wild that praying in a brick and mortar, uh, sanctuary cannot replicate. You know, I've said in the past that my rabbinate tries to harmonize the call of my faith with the call of the wild. You know, that raises an interesting question. You know, do we need to get more and more people out into nature to have these experiences, or can we somehow bring those experiences to people who live in an urban environment? You know, when I had my congregation in Manhattan, uh, I, I had uh, trips that I, I led um, somewhere in Alaska, somewhere in upstate New York, some involved rock climbing, some involved sea kayaking. So I think it's possible, but we need to figure out how to bring some of those same experiences to our churches and synagogues and congregations in more urban or suburban settings. And, and that that's really a challenge. That's something that's hard to do.
0: And what you do so deftly in the book Eight Questions of Faith is that you're weaving these moments when you're having these epiphanies in the wilderness and you're bringing us into the biblical text where yeah. the characters in the biblical text are also having these wilderness moments.
1: And I mean look at, look at the book of Job. Yes. You know, I, I explore the book of Job at the very end of, of my book. Uh, it's the very last chapter which – digs into the notion of the afterlife. But think about where Job encounters God. In the book of Job, Job encounters God in a whirlwind, in a tornado, in, in a maelstrom. So this idea of encountering the divine mystery, uh, the ineffable reality of, of the divine, something that instills in us fear and trembling and awe, that's not just Niles Goldstein, you know, chasing tornadoes. This is Job, um, looking for answers to, to life's questions and to, um, trying to find a way out of the challenges that he faced by staring in, into the whirlwind. So this is not a new idea. This goes back millennia.
0: One of the things that you play with in the book is that sort of the ultimate maelstrom for us is death. The fact that we are mortal, the fact that we, We are living and yet we will not live forever. There's a wonderful moment in an early chapter where you talk about this contrast between René Descartes who says, I think, therefore I am, and Franz Rosenzweig who says, I die, therefore I am. And what you come to in the midst of that is a description of what you call a Hamlet moment, Mm-hmm. And if you feel comfortable sort of sharing with our listeners what what you mean by that and what that meant to you, what do we mean when we say the Hamlet moment and what was that in your life?
1: Well, I think when you mentioned Descartes um, uh, and, and Rosenzweig, you, know, you highlight the difference between coming to the idea that we exist, that we live as a result of rational deliberation. That's Descartes. That's I think therefore I am – or as a result of existential experience uh, that's i die therefore i am that was rosenzweig writing on postcards while you know sitting in the trenches in world war 1 the hamlet moment for me is when we come to that crossroads as hamlet did in, in shakespeare's famous play when we come to a crossroads in our lives and we like the prophet jeremiah ask or, ask ourselves the question why are we here why did i come forth for, from the womb and the Hamlet moment addresses that that question: What is the point? You know, what, why should we go on? And I think that one of the the great things of the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition, the Muslim tradition, the other traditions, as I understand them, is that they offer us a reason to go on. I think life can be so difficult, and I'm not sure that secular culture gives us enough of a reason that despite all of our hardships uh, we we should we should go on and i think one of the beautiful things about religion is it does give us a give us an answer it does offer the promise of redemption it does offer the promise of a world beyond this one and for me that's one of the joys of of my particular faith tradition and one that i really try to highlight in in eight questions of faith
0: if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein about his recent book, Eight Questions of Faith. The book uses these eight questions found in the Bible to explore the human journey from cradle to grave, confronting such important existential questions as mortality, responsibility, forbidden knowledge, sin, and the afterlife. Well, in the in the book, I mean, you're talking about the, the ways in which you know we all have to wrestle with this ultimate question – how should we live? How should how should our lives have meaning? That's a matter that we work out and you you quote Kierkegaard at one point with our own sort of fear and trembling. But you also have just said that over against our secular culture, this is something that religious traditions do uniquely well.
1: I think so. I mean going back to the Hamlet moment, I mean Hamlet says to be or not to be. You know, that is the question. So – most of us face that question at different points when we're going through a really difficult period and and yes i agree that religion uh, addresses that that question in a uniquely powerful way
0: but now i want to flip that around where does religion get it wrong where does religion <laughs> fail us rabbi <laughs> yeah right
1: oh man well where does religion fail us i think religion can fail us when it rests too much on ancient traditions And antiquated doctrines and and beliefs. Again, I'm coming at this as a reform rabbi, as a progressive rabbi, and as a progressive rabbi, as someone who comes out of a Jewish denomination with its roots in, in the Enlightenment. I have always tried to dance that dance, to live that tension between tradition and innovation, you know, I tried to do that with my congregation in New York. I tried to do that with my writing. And I tried to do that in my own life. How do we embrace the best of tradition while still being open to creativity and, and innovation? Y- you want to know how, how religion goes wrong or yeah. where religion goes wrong. I think by resting too much on our laurels, by relying too much on the past, by not being open uh, enough to new situations. I mean, for example, um, I think of the um, LGBTQ community. Well, certain things don't change. Going back to the Ten Commandments, uh, one of them is Altir Tzach, which translates as thou shalt not murder. It doesn't say thou shalt not kill, which is a common King James mistranslation, because killing... Uh, In self-defense is just justified in the biblical tradition. But taking an innocent life, murdering is considered one of the great prohibitions in the biblical tradition. So I, I would argue that murdering someone is never right in any context, in any time, in any place but sexual ethics i think sexual ethics have evolved and changed over time and whereas in the biblical tradition there seem to be certain prohibitions against same, you know same sex sexuality even though i know some of that is is open to reinterpretation um i i think that many people now view sexual ethics in a very different way and so we have to reinterpret those teachings or if we can't reinterpret them, uh move beyond them and, and ultimately reject them. And that's something that I think people in more conservative or, or traditional faith uh traditions can't do. I'm not sure that a conservative Christian or an Orthodox Jew can can jettison some of these teachings or practices from the Bible, whereas someone with a more progressive orientation uh can. And I think religion goes wrong, to answer your question, when, when, we're, when we're anchored too much in the past and, and, and we're not nimble enough to adapt
0: uh, with, with new times. So given what you've just said about this tension between the sort of ancient truths that, that are inviolable like thou shalt not murder mm-hmm. and the, the ancient truths that are evolving, you have been at the forefront of congregations around – that I'm sure have wrestled with these questions – in that span of of decades as you've been a a religious leader, what has most frustrated you?
1: Well, I I think what has often frustrated me has frustrated every minister, priest and imam that I know, which is the disconnect, almost dichotomy between the commitment of the religionist or the cleric and the commitment of the people he or she serves. Um, Whether it's a, a commitment related to praxis, you know, personal practice or a commitment related to belief, doctrine, theology. You know, we are people, and when I say we, I mean the clergy. You know, we have devoted our lives. We've written books. We've gotten advanced degrees. You know, we've given up um, certain niceties uh, um, and made certain sacrifices in order to um, try to be the best Jew, the best Christian, the best Muslim we can be. And when we see that many of the people we serve don't share that commitment, you know, sometimes we get angry. Uh, sometimes we get frustrated. Sometimes, and I, believe me, I experienced this myself. Sometimes we get burned out and we say the hell with it. You know, I don't want to be a congregational rabbi anymore. And that's what happened to me a few years ago. And I, I wrote, I write about that very, um, uh, overtly in eight questions of faith. Now I'm slowly but surely working my way back, but you know, burnout is very common among the congregational clergy. So that can happen. You know, so finding a, a, a partnership, uh, and a similar level of commitment, or at least a civil, similar level of, um, uh, wrestling with the tradition is very important and very difficult, uh, when you are a member of the congregational clergy serving your community. Um, and, and that's why there's a lot of burnout and frustration. And, and then one of the problems is that the clergy sometimes get too preachy, uh, and too holier than thou. And then the congregation rightly so gets res- resentful. And then that, that can lead to another host of unhealthy um, outcomes and relationships. So, you know, th- th- uh, you cited Pew earlier, and I think Pew has highlighted the dwindling roles of people, uh, especially in mainline Protestantism and, you know, um, more liberal Judaism. Uh, you know, people are voting with their, their feet and, and membership roles are dwindling in many of our congregation congregations, and this is partly why. So finding a healthy balance and a healthy relationship between clergy and laity is something that's very important that we really need to work on
0: uh, more and more. So flip side of that, what keeps you buoyant? What gives you hope? Well, um,
1: I think what gives me hope is the passion of our youth. I'm not that old, but I'm not as young as I used to be. So I think the passion uh, and creativity of, of youth is something that, that helps. I don't have any children myself and, and that's something that, that I find very um, uplifting. I mean I was just hanging out with my nephew the other day who's a freshman in high school. He's, he just turned 15. And when I hear him talking about the various challenges and things that excite him, whether it's playing a team sport or discovering girls for the first time, and you know, I have some insight and wisdom over the, uh, because I've gone through that over the years. It's just a very cool, wonderful thing to have that kind of relationship with with youth, whether it's family or, or, or not. Um, so I think youth keeps me buoyant. I think conversations like the one you and I are having keeps me excited. Um, I think the dirty little secret of people in the congregational uh, uh, world uh, have is that we don't often get to talk about this stuff. You would think we would talk about it more and more, but we don't. We're busy with budgets. We're busy with – uh, the physical plant, we're busy with bar and bat mitzvahs or confirmations or what have you. We don't always get to talk about things uh, that you and I are talking about. Or I would say my writing, my, my books uh, and the research I have to do for my books um, uh, help keep me buoyant. And, and I would say finally, um, faith in, in the reality of God. Even though for me, like for Job, God is this mysterious, awe-inspiring whirlwind um, ineffable whirlwind who I can only brush against but never really encounter in an unmediated direct way. Just like Moses never sees God's face, he only sees God's back. Um, you know, that's enough sometimes. Maybe you encountered God's back in North Carolina. I know I've encountered it a handful of times in my life, but those handful of times, you know, keep me going. They kept me going through a divorce. They've kept me going through professional struggles um, and they keep me going uh, to this day. And I try to offer some of those um, ideas and some of that uplift uh, through my new book, which I hope people are going to read <laughs> because I think there's a lot there that people are going to relate to.
0: Well, Rabbi Niles Goldstein, I, I very much enjoyed the book and I learned from it. Thank you so much for taking the time and being with us.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate it, David. Thank you very much.
0: We've been talking today with Rabbi Niles Goldstein. He's written 10 books, and uh, the most recent of them is Eight Questions of Faith, Biblical Challenges That Guide and Ground Our Lives. Uh, he has worked as a rabbi in New York City and in the Chicago area, and he has also worked as a chaplain for federal law enforcement and for the U.S. military. He lectures all over the United States about issues of spirituality, leadership, and personal growth. And uh, his writing has appeared in a number of publications, including The New York Times, Time Magazine. Magazine, the Christian Science Monitor, and others. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keija. David Dalt engineered the show, Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. Taylor Gould is our intern this year. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our upcoming guests. That's Facebook.com slash Radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, visit us at patreon.com slash notseenradio. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.